Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Uh, and we talked about that, but really only talked about it at the end. We spent the majority of the message looking at the cross, looking at the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. And the thrust of the message, the main point, was, if you remember, that God, in his great mercy and love for us, is inclined to forgive us. We are sinful. Ever since the fall, mankind is born sinful with a sin nature that is an offense to God, that cannot dwell in his presence, but God loves us. So he's inclined to forgive us. But God in his holiness, God in his perfection and righteousness can't ignore our sin. God is love, but God is holy. God is our father and our friend, but God is our judge, and he has to judge sin. So the message of the cross of Christ is that that is where he judged our sin And we are only judged in Christ. Our sin, which had to be punished, which had to be dealt with, had to be paid for with blood, was laid on Jesus. And God's judgment, yes, God's wrath, was poured out on Christ. He took it, and all that punishment that was mine landed on him. So there's no more judgment awaiting the believer what we called the crucifixion, and the title of that message was the most judgmental act in history, because it absolutely was. The cross speaks of God's judgment, about the cost, what it cost God to cleanse us of our sin, to redeem us, and buy us back to him. That reminded me of something. I had to dig it up. This was uh, something I printed out years ago. I was, and I don't know what led me to this website. I don't have a reference for that. But it was a church, you know, you click on it, you go to any church website and, you know, about us kind of tells you, should tell you a little bit what kind of church they are. And this is a church, I won't name it. Uh, I wasn't familiar with it other than this, this little blurb that I had printed out. And it says this, I especially want you, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you catch what I'm really trying to get you to see, but I'll read it so you get everything in context. Uh, such and such is a place a church and people committed to living and worshiping with joy, simplicity, and caring. We care for the hidden wholeness in each other. We care for justice and kindness in our society. We care about thinking with open minds and devoted hearts, and we care about saving the beauty and integrity of the environment for future generations. Because we care deeply about these things, we practice what we preach in our personal lives as well as in our church's programs. Being an open and affirming church, we welcome people of different sexual orientations, socioeconomic status, racial and ethnic backgrounds, and we value the differences among us as signs of the Creator's amazing polyphony. Our faith is rooted in Jesus Christ, listen to this, whom we endeavor to follow in the radical way of progressive Christianity. That is, we believe the Bible is truthful, but not literal. That God is a living presence, but not a dominating white man in the sky. That Jesus is a person of the Spirit and of saving wisdom, 
but not a sacrifice to an offended God. We commit ourselves to equal and utmost respect for a person's joyful worship, theological discipline and discovery, social justice and dignity, and collegial leadership. I am all about dignity, fellowship, equality, etc. But when you are a church and you put it in your articles of faith that Jesus was not a sacrifice, I ain't going to your church. He absolutely was. I don't know how many of you... uh, I sent out uh, an email letting you know about an article that I've been asked to write for the SJO Daily online paper, an online paper with, I'm sure, a circulation of dozens. Uh, No, actually, I don't know how many people see this thing. But it got some pretty good response, and I know a lot of that's thanks to you guys sharing it and everything. I appreciate it. Uh, But uh, in that, I talked about that. How, uh, how people are, are very, uh, we, in this society anyway, we like the idea of a, a peaceful Jesus, a nice Jesus, a tolerant Jesus. Uh, but that you can't really separate the Jesus that walked this earth and, uh, and his father. Because Jesus himself kept saying, we are one. The Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus are, are absolutely both true representations of the God we worship. And that God is holy and loving. He is forgiving and just, and that justice includes judgment. And I'll say a little bit about this, uh, the, this thing called the resurrection today, because that's what this day is about. We talked about the justice. We talked about the payment for our sin. We talked about the cross last week. Today, we talk about the resurrection. But I want to remind you of some things first, and I, what I want to do is kind of think a little bit about what it was like during the time that Jesus was actually in the grave. And I'll say this now just to get it out of the way. Don't sweat the math. People sit there and it, because of songs and because of uh, poems and recitations and creeds. Uh, sometimes we think, we, we, how, do we, how do we reconcile this? Jesus said he'd be in the, in the earth, he'd be in the grave three days and three nights if he was crucified on Friday. He spent Friday night in the grave. He spent Saturday in the grave. He spent Saturday night in the grave and rose on Sunday. How is that three days, three nights? Number one, there's a, if you want to, you can dig this stuff up. It's not hard to find, and I don't have time to teach it this morning. It's not part of my sermon. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I think there's a very strong case to be made. He was actually crucified on a Thursday. There's nothing in the Bible that says he was crucified on a Friday. The reason we think he was is because they wanted his body taken down off the cross because the next day was a Sabbath. That's where we get the Friday crucifixion from. But it says it was a Sabbath. And there were other Sabbaths other than, whoops, other than the weekly Saturday Sabbath. There were special Sabbaths for certain feasts and holy days. And we, we kind of know which one this was, so it's not a big deal. Uh, so don't sweat that stuff. So when I talk about the time he was in the grave, and I'm going to talk about today the longest Saturday or a long Saturday. Uh, it was probably a long Friday and a long Saturday. Okay as well as a Thursday night. But anyway, I want you to start by remembering this. Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection several times. We'll look at just a few of them, but there are many more. Uh, you can read along with me if you want. Or with, uh, with me if you want. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, we'll begin in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. 
Then Peter took him aside. Now, this was after, by the way, this was right after Peter's famous confession of the Christ. Remember, he's sitting there with his disciples. He said, hey, who do the people say I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, And Jesus uh, tells him, yes, uh, God is the one who revealed this to you, Simon, changes his name. And then he's predicting this, says in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, beginning in verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. We'll come back to that idea here in a second. Uh, And in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 31. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask. It's interesting, and it's important, by the way, that they were generally confused about what he meant. These were two scriptures we just read that tell us specifically they didn't really understand the saying. And how many of you know, how many of you have read your Bibles enough and the Gospels to know that Jesus said some things that were a little more confusing than that? I mean, this, what he's saying here, is pretty straightforward. We are going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to the authorities, and they're going to whip me, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise three days later. And they hear this. And yet, even after he was killed, I don't get the impression. We don't see it. We don't see a lot of what happened between the, I mean, we see his burial, but we don't see a lot of what happened during the days he was in the grave. You know, the next chapter starts, and then on the third day. But we don't get the sense, I don't get the sense, that they were eagerly waiting and anticipating the resurrection. They weren't even thinking about it. When, even though Jesus told them, look, we're going here, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead, they didn't know what this meant. And you have to understand this, he spoke in parables so often. He said things to them, and then he would pull them aside and say, let me explain this to you. I'm sure, I'm quite sure in their minds, they'd already come to the conclusion, his disciples anyway, that he was the Messiah. This is the long-awaited king of Israel. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to get us out from under Roman rule, and he's going to rescue us from this. He's going to put us back on top. They didn't think the Messiah could be killed. This is a greater than David. This is the Messiah. We can't wait to see how he really manifests himself. So when he talked about, well, they're going to kill me, they're, getting, they're putting on their, their uh, ultra-spiritual faces and thinking, what could he mean by that? Hmm. He's going to rise from the dead on the third day. What is the spiritual implication? Uh, what are the, uh, the spiritual implications of those, those words? I don't think it ever occurred to them 
that he was literally going to be killed until he was literally killed. Three years they had spent with him. What an investment. And they had all their eggs in that basket, staked their lives, their hopes, their dreams. And then Jesus is killed. How can this be? The crucifixion, when it happened, was a huge, huge disappointment for his disciples, for all those who had followed him all the way up to that point. We remember, especially from things we've been reading on Wednesday nights, that many people left him. There were people who followed him, even those who called themselves his disciples, who when he would come to a certain point and begin to speak about certain things, they'd say, yep, we're done now. We're not following you anymore. This is too hard. But he had some that stayed with him all the way to the cross, and they were just waiting for God to reveal himself. This mysterious talk about death, resurrection, what can it really mean? Maybe they pictured something. Ah, when he says he's going to die, it means this physical man-like body he has now. He's going to shed it like a, like a cocoon, and he's going to come bursting out superhero style. style. He's going to appear like an angel or something else where everybody's going to see that he can't be killed. And then it comes to this crucified like a common criminal with two common criminals. In fact, it looks to me as I read through this story that the only ones who were even thinking about the resurrection were the Jewish authorities. And not because they thought it would really happen, but they remembered that he said something. In Matthew 27... Beginning in verse 62, it says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb may be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. They remembered that Jesus had said, I will rise again after three days. Did the disciples remember that? Again, they probably heard it, they might have remembered it, but because it never occurred to them to think that he was really going to be killed, I don't think for three days it really occurred to them that he was literally going to rise from the dead. They sure weren't waiting at the grave. It was a long Saturday. And I don't think they spent that Saturday thinking, tomorrow's the third day, I wonder if he's really going to rise. I think they were simply wondering what was going to happen next. What do we do with our lives now? He's gone. The one we thought was him is gone. The women who went to the tomb on the first day of the week, you know, they get the credit. It's a wonderful, it's, it's one of the greatest apologetics, one of the greatest defenses for the Christian faith. The women were the first one to witness the empty tomb, to witness the risen Christ, and, and one of the lines of argument uh, for the uh, validity of the resurrection story is that anybody writing this back then would not have made women the first witnesses because legally, their testimony didn't count like a man's testimony counted. But they had the privilege of, of seeing the risen Lord, seeing the empty tomb, but they didn't go there for that purpose. Do you remember what they went there for? They were carrying spices. They were simply going to do some maintenance on what they thought was a corpse. 
They were upset when they got to the tomb and it was empty. We don't know what happened to the body. As if it wasn't bad enough that they killed him, now somebody's taken his body away. The disciples had to be convinced when, when the women came back after the angel had told them, hey, don't sweat it, nobody stole his body, he has risen. And they go running back, he's alive, he's alive. They had to run and see the empty tomb themselves. They had to see Jesus, the risen Lord themselves, before they could believe it. But once they did... Once they encountered the risen Lord, it absolutely changed everything. Nothing could stop them. He was back. He was back, and now they understood, almost. They understood when he, when he uh, appeared alive to them in the flesh, not just spiritually, but alive, and made himself manifest to them. Then they understood, oh, yeah, when he said he was going to die and rise from the dead, now we get it. Now we know what he meant. He was going to die, die, and rise from the dead. But the part they didn't quite get yet was, because then they began to ask him, okay, now we get it. This is fantastic. You rose from the dead. You can do anything. So are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now going to do what we thought and hoped and believed you were going to do before all that death and resurrection stuff? Are you going to put Israel back on top? And he had to explain some things. His kingdom is not of this world. He gives them a mission. He walks with them for 40 more days, continues to teach them, disciple them, instruct them, and explained that he wasn't setting up his earthly kingdom now, but that when he came back, he would. He's leaving. And he does. After 40 days, he ascends into heaven. And they watch him. Here's the thing. What was their reaction this time? They were used to being with him 24-7 for three, three and a half years. And then he dies, and they are shattered. Their plans are shattered. Their lives are shattered. Their hopes and dreams are shattered. And then he's back. And then he leaves again. What's their reaction this time? The reaction was they remained committed. They had seen miracles. They had heard Jesus preach and teach like nobody else around them. The authority that he spoke with impressed everybody. And again, they had seen the miracles. And yet somehow, everything they experienced as his closest disciples wasn't enough to buoy them and maintain their faith during the time he was in the grave. But when he rose from the dead and manifested himself to them as alive again, then even when he left again, nothing changed. Nothing shook their commitment. They carried on. They pressed on. They, began to, they, be, they continued to meet. And after the day of Pentecost, they began to carry out the Great Commission. And they almost all died as a direct result of doing that. As the book of Acts said, they turned the world upside down, carrying out the Great Commission. They endured hardships. They did miracles. And what was their motive? What was their motive? 
They weren't thinking in terms of heaven and hell, even though they knew the concept, the doctrines of heaven and hell. That what motivated them to work and live like they worked and lived was that Jesus had risen from the dead, just like he said he would, and he said he was coming back. This was their motive. He's coming back. How do we know he's coming back? He said he would. That's all they needed at that point, you see? He said he would die and rise again. They didn't believe that because they never even understood it. Well, whatever he means, it doesn't mean he's going to die. The Messiah's not going to die, and we know he's the Messiah. Then when he died, oh, no, they forget all about the rising again. He rises again, and then they're like, oh, wow, now we get it. You really can do anything you say. You will do everything you promise. And he says, I will return. I am coming back for you, and meanwhile, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, but I am coming back. And they start working and working and working with this passion. They believed he was coming back in their lifetime, but they knew he was coming back. Why? What was the evidence? Didn't need any evidence. He said it. This is the same guy who said he would rise from the dead. He did. We believe everything he says now. Any minute he could come back, they thought. So they're working and ministering with this sense of urgency because they wanted to be found working and living in a way that pleased him when he showed up. So here are a couple questions for you. First, are you weary in your waiting? Are you weary in your well-doing? Is living the way that you, are you, first of all, if you're living in a, in, a, in a way that you want to please God, you know you want to please God, is it wearing you out? Is it, is it hard? Is it expensive? Is it costly in terms of your relationships? Do you ever start to wonder, what's this for? What's it about? If you've gotten discouraged, I want to encourage you, don't lose heart. He who resurrects the dead can resurrect your happiness, your family, your marriage, your career, your finances, your health. He breathes life into all of the things that pertain to our lives. And this God who judged your sin in Jesus Christ loves you. And He has made promises to you. Claim them, believe them, and expect them. Second, he said he is coming back. He said he's coming back, and he is. So believer, talking to the believer now, are you ready? Just call me a believer. If I'm a believer, I'm born again. I'm saved. Of course I'm ready. Are you really? Where's your urgency? What is it that you want to be found doing when he comes back? Are you living? Are we living like we, like we believe he's coming back? You know, there were a lot of churches, a lot of uh, denominations, uh, even in my lifetime, and maybe still today, because I'm not that old. So if it was true when I was a kid, it's obviously probably still true today. There, there were people that I know who were raised believing uh, that you could not go to movies on Sunday. And the reason they gave me was because if Jesus comes back on a Sunday and you're in a movie theater, you don't go. You don't go to heaven. 
and they believe that. I'm not making fun of you if you believe that, okay? But if, if we take that, that idea, it's like, well, most of the time I'm good. What if you're not being good the moment he comes back? I don't believe you're going to lose your salvation. That's not the point. The point is, what do you want to be doing when he comes back? As a lifestyle, where do you want to be in life? Do you want to be in a backslidden state? Even if you're sleeping, literally sleeping, I mean, statistically speaking, you know, a lot of believers are going to be physically asleep when he returns. But are they sleeping the sleep of the just? Are they sleeping the sleep of somebody who has spent the day living a life that honors the God who gave them life? I was listening to an old Michael Omardian album. There's a song called Here He Comes on the album Adam Again. Check it out. And there's a couple lines in there, and one of them was this. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but I believe he's coming soon. What will you do if I'm right? And the second one was even better. Here's the line I really like from that song. No one is better at keeping a promise. What if he keeps it today? Stay ready, believers. Stand up with me, because now I have a question for the unbeliever. Unbeliever, anyone in here who has never committed their life to Christ, never looked at the cross, never looked at the empty grave and said, you know what, I do believe. I do believe Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. Will you believe today? Will you make that confession today? Will you accept that gift today? Will you believe me? when I tell you that you are not guaranteed tomorrow. That you don't have forever to make the decision to give your life to him, to trust him for your salvation. Will you do that today? After we sing here, uh, and while we're singing this song, ushers, we need to go get the children out of class because we're going to take communion together after this invitation. So let me explain what we do with communion right now. Uh, I'll, I'll do a little message before the communion, but I'm telling you this part now. We do open communion in this church, and what that means is you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, I don't care where you go to church, I don't care what stripe of Christian you are, you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. All right? But we do not believe you should partake of it if you are not yet a believer. We believe in honoring this as an ordinance that the Lord gave to his family, his believers, his church. And so we are so glad you're here. And we want you to partake with us, but only if you are already a believer. And I'm telling you this now because in addition, if you accept Christ today, in addition to heaven as your eternal home, in addition to shunning hell, in addition to inheriting life eternal starting now, in addition to receiving the Holy Spirit and actually hearing and learning from the God who created you exactly the kind of life he has for you, in addition to all that, you can take communion with us today. And we would love for you to do that. So I'm going to make this invitation specifically now. I'm going, to say, I'm going to say a prayer in just a minute. And as soon as I pray, 
If you desire to give your heart to Christ, to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and accept that free gift of eternal life that comes only from accepting his sacrifice on the cross, if you desire to make that decision today, here's what I'm asking you to do. And it might be scary because maybe you don't know everybody here. Got a lot of different faces in here today. Might not be something you're comfortable doing, but I, don't want, I urge you not to wait. I want you to come up here during that song. As soon as I say amen from the prayer, come up here. I will pray with you. I will simply lead you in that prayer. So we both know you said it. You've got a witness, and you've got these witnesses. Can I don't, I don't do this very often, but can I see a show of hands? Those of you who are saved, who got saved, by walking down in front of a crowd of people, whether you knew them or not. And yeah, see, look around. Very public confession of salvation. This is not unusual. Don't be afraid. Don't let nervousness or concern like that rob you from the gift of eternal life. Okay? Believers, if something struck you during the first part of that invitation, what are you doing? Are you ready for him? What do you want to be doing when, uh, found doing when he comes back? If you decide you need to make a commitment, a recommitment, a reconnection to Christ, I'll pray with you too. Or the altar's open. You can pray from there. But make that commitment. I don't know how short time is, but I can say this absolutely. No matter how bad at math I am, I know this is true. We have about 2,000 fewer years than they had 2,000 years ago. We're getting closer all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin in your own body, taking those stripes on your own body to purchase our forgiveness, our redemption, and our healing. Thank you, Lord, for your word that tells us these things and explains these things to us. And thank you for the power of the resurrection. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. And thank you that as he walks in that resurrection life, it means something to us, Lord, when he says, because I live, you also shall live. We want that life. We want that resurrection life. And we want it starting now. And we want it in heaven with you eternally. Father, I pray right now, and I know it's the prayer of every believer in this room, that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would convict them of their sin, convict them of their need, and place in them a burning desire to know you and be saved. Grant them, Lord, the wisdom, the humility, and the boldness, and whatever else is necessary to come receive the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. All the believers said, amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.